Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. How are you? I hope you're well. My name is John Porch. I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute and today my special guest is Dr. Larry Lauer, the mental skills specialist for the United States Tennis Association's Player Development Program. Many of you will know Larry, a long-time Leaders Performance Institute member from various Leaders Summits. You may have even seen him on virtual roundtables or perhaps even read articles I've worked with him on in the past. Some of you may also be familiar with his podcast, Compete Like a Champion, which he co-hosts with fellow Leaders member Johnny Parks, who is a former guest on this podcast too. Do go and check their show out once you've listened to this episode. So, coming up, I asked Larry about the mental skills provisions at USTA Player Development to help set the scene before exploring how mental skills can support young players in their overall development. We then look at the question of player resilience and how the pandemic has impacted upon Larry's work. Before we get into it, I wanted to draw your attention to our upcoming virtual roundtable, which is titled Wellbeing for Staff and Athletes, The State of Play, and takes place on Tuesday, the 3rd of May. A week later, on the 10th of May, Leaders Performance Advisor Ed Vahid, the Assistant Academy Manager at English Premier League Club Southampton, will host the first of three sessions in his Performance Support Series. The overarching topic, which is one close to Ed's heart, is the synchronisation of player and coach development. So that's two different topics, neither to be missed. Sign up now if you're a Leaders Performance Institute member. And if you're not yet a member, but think it sounds like a good idea, visit leadersinsport.com slash performance to find out more. That's all the parish notices. Let's get on with the episode where I began by asking Larry about his role. Yes, so my role is the head of our mental performance team. We have three mental coaches, including myself, and I lead that team. I'm the only full-time mental coach here at USTA Player Development. My title is Mental Skills Specialist for USTA Player and Coach Development. In my role, I make sure our athletes are mentally prepared to perform. I work side-by-side with our coaches, with our performance staff, so athlete training medicine, training conditioning, nutritionists, and really trying to make sure that we're considering the psychology and all of our decision-making and training the skills necessary for our athletes to perform in this high-performance world. How well do you feel the USTA has normalized mental skills? Is it now seen as foundational rather than just a luxury item, as it may be in other organizations in other sports across the world? That's, that was such a great question to start with, John. I, I love that when you proposed that to me because it's been a big part of our effort and it's the stuff under the surface because there's so much we do in front of the players that in terms of teaching content and skills and, and helping them, but how are we normalizing that? And I think that we have, and that's been a big effort since the early days. To me, it started with Coach Bayan. And I got to tell you, when I started the USCA in 2013, the coaches wanted a full-time mental coach on staff. So it wasn't like the coaches were like, oh, we're getting one? Great. What do we do with it? It was like, no, we want this person. We want help. Before that, they had support, but it was, wasn't embedded in the system of development, right? It was outside. People would come in, talk to them. But the coaches were generally responsible for the mental preparation of, of the players, and they felt like they needed support, which totally understands. But from the early days, we had coach buy-in, but coaches saw how it could be used in different ways. You know, some wanted me just to sort of take over the mental side of it and do my thing. And I was kind of off to the side. And others wanted me on the court helping them. They wanted to be involved and everything in between. So our, our, uh, after the first year of sort of learning about the environment, the culture, player development, 
what the players deal with essentially in professional tennis and junior tennis. Started to learn a lot about, well, what would work in this culture? And after about a year, presented to the staff, here's an approach that I think it will be important for us. And I felt like first and foremost, we needed to be resilient. Tennis has a lot of issues in terms of making mistakes, right? Unforced errors, forced errors, double faults, breaks, you know, all this stuff. It's not a clean game. It's not gymnastics. It's not figure skating. You're not going for a perfect score. So you're just trying to find a way to win the last point. So it is a messy game, but it's, it's an amazing game too. So with that, uh, you know, really presenting how we could integrate psychology or really what I was talking about, resilience, engagement, toughness, determination into everything that we do instead of having it being separate from. And, and the coaches were bought in and they, they agreed. And so we started, you know, I spent a lot of time on the road with the coaches and the players lot even more time at practice watching practice giving feedback sometimes not saying a word for two hours but just observing and, and just being present and that john that made such a big difference for me is being present because then the, then the athletes feel like oh okay you're interested you know a little bit about what i'm doing right so you're not just coming in like you know stuff but you haven't watched me perform or practice and they feel like you care enough that you're around and honestly, to me, in my work, you know, I do care and I, I want to see how they're practicing. I want to see how they're doing in the gym and, and on the, in the match court. So, so being present uh, has helped to normalize things. Uh, having those conversations on the side about their fantasy hockey team or what's going on with their, their dog or their parents or, uh, you know, whatever conversations that we're having, joking around and being part of the fabric. That has helped to normalize things. So we're just part of the team now. So. Obviously, people have different opinions on this. You know, some are more resistant than others. You know, sometimes their parents don't believe in it. Sometimes, you know, they, they think that toughness is about not being vulnerable or not sharing. And so we deal with some of that. But we've, what we've tried to do is to integrate mental training into all of our training. So as a junior, if you come here to the national campus or to our, our West Coast Performance Center in Carson, you are going to get mental training. You're going to sit in a meeting at the youngest ages, it's group meetings. We'll talk about things that matter to you, how you're practicing, how your performances are going, and, and ideas of how you can use a mental game to help you. Uh, so it be, has become a part of our training weeks, our camps. We always have presentations on, on psychology, and it's infused into everything we do. We ask our coaches to reinforce it. We go on court to reinforce it. And we also are doing our best to um, be innovative and, and try to find ways to make it practical, right, and make it user-friendly. So when they come to mental training, we don't want them to get a lecture that they're like, okay, that was interesting, but I have no idea how to use it. We want it so it's it's easy to grasp, understand, and yet it's science-based, it's accurate, it's valid, it's reliable, and they can go out and use it. And so that's really the goal. With the juniors, it's structured more where it's just a part of their day and they do something every day. Sometimes it's with the mental performance team, sometimes it's not with the coaches or on their own. We call it daily mental practice. And I borrowed that from someone else. So it's not my title, but it's daily mental practice that they're doing every, something every day to get their mind ready to perform, to use their mind as they perform, and then they reflect on their performances. And then the pros, you know, that we're kind of meeting in the middle of their journey or at the end of their journey, obviously it's very customized. But I've been here almost nine years, and now we have pros who are with us as juniors. And we're seeing this willingness to share, willingness to still engage, even if they're doing their own thing, which is really the goal of a national governing body. 
in the U.S. is that eventually we need to kind of move them on so we can refocus back on the young ones and prepare them to be pros. That they have what they need to be a successful pro. That they know what quality mental performance, mental skills, whatever you want to call it is. So they know the difference between what's poor and what's good quality. And that they have their own way of coaching themselves, hopefully by the time that we're done working, that they know what they need to do. And then when they talk to me, it's more brushing up or confirming their own ideas. So, you know, that was a long-winded answer, but to normalize it, it's really been sort of a, a journey over time. It's taken a lot of people. It's taken the whole team. It's not just me. I couldn't have done it on my own without the support of all my team members who, who would have never brought it to where it is. And it could still be better. Well, and thank you for sharing that, Larry. And I'm very curious to ask you as well about how you feel mental skills and that side of the game can feed into players working on their physical and tactical elements in order to improve their overall performance. How does the mental side feed into the physical and tactical? Quiet the mind so they can use the skills that they're learning. Because often one of the core issues in mental performance is just trying to think too much, trying to control things. I'm trying to control the performance. I'm trying to make something happen. I'm trying to avoid something, which is even worse. And in doing so, we, we end up really thinking way too much. The brain gets going and, and judging us, judging the performance in real time. And, and we're distracted from the present here and now. So what we try to do really is to help our players understand first who they are as a player and a person. What is your identity as a player? What are your strengths? What are your patterns of play? What are your go-to plays under pressure? Have a clear identity of how you play, how you compete, and how you plan to use it. To me, that's a lot of the battle, to be honest. If you can get a clear idea of how you perform, you go on the court so much more confident, feeling good about yourself, right? You don't have those question marks, which create the anxiety. It's okay, I'm doing this. And and through that, we can become really process-focused. So if they have a clear identity and they know that if I perform in these ways, I can get the result that I want. It's not guaranteed, obviously. I don't have control over the outcome, but it gives me the best possible chance. Then they start to release some of the need for the outcomes or to back up sort of their ego, right? It's like, let's make it about the process, about just being here present, doing the things that make you successful. You be you, go out and perform. And I'll take that every day because we train for success and you put the work in. So let's you go out and be yourself. That's going to give you a great chance to be successful. So we try to, we try to get the brain working for them, quiet it down through things like breathing and, and setting really clear goals or focal points for them. I borrowed this from Saul Miller, who's wrote Hockey Tough, but just the ABCs of performance. And what are the basic things? that you do them, that you perform well. Let's put our focus on that. So we talk about the ABCs, trying to get the mind focused on the, how they're gonna perform, the process versus the need to win. In doing so, when we redirect the focus to things that they have more control over, that also tends to quiet the mind, the doubts, the worries, and, and easy anxiety. Uh, so it really is about the breathing to allow them to quiet the mind down, to calm down, to focus the mind then on specific things that they have been practicing, things that they know are their strengths, their game plan. When they have that sense of control over that, I tend to find then we can get commitment and that's where the mind really starts to quiet down. So 
we'll, we'll have them journal those goals. We'll have them visualize or use imagery of those goals. We'll use video of when they have performed that way just to really set the mind. So when they go into performances, it's, it's not about, oh, gosh, I, I have to win three matches this week or I'm going to lose X number of points. It's about competing this way, playing this way, because that's what matters most. That gets you to the outcome. How do we turn that physical and tactile and performance? You know, that's kind of what I've been addressing. I think what we have to do is to help the players be really clear on the way they want to think as they're performing or practicing. When you practice, you think a little differently than when you perform. When you practice, you are evaluating things more. You, you might be analyzing things more, right? And breaking them down. How does this feel in this movement? And in a match, you don't want to do that so much, as you know. You want to focus more on strategy. You want to focus more on what you're trying to do to the person on the other side of the net versus, well, my elbow feels like this. It's really helping the players discipline their minds to know where to take their focus and when and training it, and training it, and training it. And then we'll do things like imagery or visualization to really take and quiet that mind down, focus it more on images, right? So instead of when you go to serve, telling yourself 30 things, why not imagine yourself going up for the ball, hitting it, falling through, and it going exactly where you want it to go? What we found is if we get them to imagine a good serve prior to serving, typically they serve better. It's just mind on task, right? We do that and we'll show that to them on court. So we'll use imagery to help them kind of focus in on the task instead of, I don't want a double fault. What if they step up on my second serve? What if, what if, what if? And the anxiety grows, they're distracted. Performance inevitably is worse. So doing things to direct the focus, the attention, using the different skills and making the mind more simple, clear, concise is extremely important. Now, the other way I'd say we do that is through routine. So we take all this stuff because I've basically just given you a whole bunch of information. And if I do that to the athletes, they're like, Larry, what do I do with all this? Giving them, uh, working with them to create simple routines that allow them to go from last point to the next point, last ball to the next ball in the drill. And it, it starts with breathing to reset, refocus on your purpose, refocus on your strategy. And that's the very basis of it. And then there's different things that we talk about to help with that, but training them to do that and to commit to the next action is the key. And those different actions that you described there in some detail, how do you track the progress of the players? I mean, you must see them improve on a day-by-day basis and perhaps over the course of an extended period of time. Does it also impact, Larry, how you deliver feedback? Do you take more of a passive role? Is it more player-led? It depends. With our uh, one way, it depends our juniors who may not have a really clear vision of what they're trying to do yet, and they're learning it with their coaches. We might take a more active role, right, in, in providing feedback because they're in the beginning learning stages, right, where they're still trying to create this schema, this schematic in their brain of what they're trying to do. What, how do I play tennis? How do I deal with adversity? How should I use my routines? We're going to be more involved. But as you're pointing out, it's very important for us to draw back and become a little bit more passive so they can rely on their own feedback pretty quickly. Uh, So as they become more experienced, as they get older, uh, we tend to rely more on them telling us what's going on. Another part of that, John, is honestly, they might not be here at the training center more than 10 or 12 weeks out of the year. So there's 40 weeks that we're not seeing them. So we have to rely on their feedback. So we have to train them pretty quickly to be able to understand what's going on so they can give us accurate feedback. And obviously the other person we rely on is the coach. 
the coach being able to give us accurate feedback on what's happening so then we can communicate with the player. And, and that's always one of our performance issues is how can you get accurate feedback? It's already tough with mental performance because it's the mind and how do you measure that? But then you're relying on somebody else to tell you. So it, it is a challenge. One, we continue to work on to try and get better and better, to be honest. I, I personally, to try and overcome some of this, is I've, I've tried to define to our coaches and players in collaboration with them, what does a good mental performance look like? And we kind of broke it down into three levels. And again, my mind usually works in three, so be that what it may. But on a very basic level one is what we expect. And I'm kind of pulling off an old Don Hellison social personal responsibility as some of our uh, listeners know Don Hellison's work with youth. But level one performance to me mentally is giving good effort, being a good sport, doing the things that your parents would want you to do. Can you be in control of yourself first? Because if we can't be in control of ourselves, it's hard to imagine the other things going well that are coming next. So first we have to have self-control, self-regulation. Am I in control of my emotions? Am I in control of my behaviors? Am I doing the things that allow me to feel proud of myself when I walk off the court? The second level then, if you have this space, is to then look at, okay, well, are you ready to play each point? So again, we had to establish some way, even though it's still subjective for our players to understand, well, what does a good mental performance look like? At the end of the day, if you're ready to play each point, to me, you're probably going to perform way better. And we had to define readiness too. What did it mean to be ready? Well, it meant to be present, to be committed to a plan, and to have positive mental, physical energy, a sense of moving forward up on the balls of your feet, thinking about actions versus the past or the future, things you're about to do in that moment. And so we define that with the players. We talk about it, and that's kind of the optimal performance state we try to reach in this level two of mental performance. We also talk about how you won't be perfect and how you need to address the times that you're not focused, and that's okay. Just getting your focus back and how you do that. But that's our level two. Are you doing your routines? Are you focused the vast majority of the time? And then level three is you allow yourself to perform. Are you playing free? So are you accelerating on your strokes? Are you playing your game or that vision identity that I talked about under pressure? How are you making decisions? It's not necessary being, necessarily being in flow. It could be. You might not be in flow because that doesn't happen a lot, but you could still perform freely and swing out, play your game under pressure, do the best you can. So we broke it down those three levels, and then we have our coaches rate every match that they see on those three levels from one to 10, and then give us a reason why they gave that score. I can then, if I have if I want to, or if I have concerns, go back in, look at it and say, okay, player X, let's talk about this match. Tell me how you would rate yourself. Now, John, some players I work with really closely and some I don't. So there's always that piece of it. But if I'm working closely with them, I'm getting feedback from them, hopefully live. Here's how the match went. Here's how I competed. And then I can compare it to what the coach is saying. So we, we rely on this idea when we can get a triangulation that if I can get multiple points of data telling me the same thing, then I can feel more confident in what I'm, what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing. If I'm getting conflicting reports, then I need to dig in more, whether that's having a team meeting, bringing everybody together to talk about what's happening, or just asking some more questions to better understand um, what actually is going on. So um, beyond that, you know, getting, trying to get really good accurate feedback is hard. And I know we talk about that in leaders a lot. Uh, how do you get good feedback, when, especially when you're not the performance? 
we'll do things like charting matches. We have charts to look at how players are reacting to their points, time between points, comparing that to for serve percentage, comparing that to unforced errors, winners, all these things so we can give them a little bit more data to show them their progress. They like to see that visual of here's how you're doing things and here's the flow of your match. And then uh, doing things like putting heart rate monitors on them in practice, being able to show them as they do their diaphragmatic rhythmic breathing, how they're dropping their heart rate down. So there are some specific ways also where we can get a little bit more data and then show that team to also chart the progress. So, but at the end of the day, player needs to have a really clear idea of what the goal is. It has to be defined, operationalized, and you got to have a plan on how you're going to achieve it and how you're going to measure it, which um, in our, on our side of the game, the psychology, the mental side can be challenged. When you find that players are doing the right things, they are embodying the behaviors that you would like to see in mentally resilient players. Does that help sustain the wider culture? Do the junior players perhaps look up to the older players, look at them and think, you know what, I can actually do that myself. I'm going to copy them almost. I think you're right. There is a part of that social learning that's going on in a training center on a campus or even watching players because our players typically will watch the pros, our juniors, and how they're doing, how they're dealing with things. And we'll talk about matches that we're watching. Not necessarily always American players too. We'll talk about what's going on with Djokovic or any of the players that are out there on tour and how are they responding to things. One thing it does is it it shows them maybe what it looks like at the highest level and what they might aspire to. It also shows them that you can normalize that people are perfect. They make mistakes. They lose their routines. They get distracted. And how quickly do they get it back? Because that's really probably the sign of a champion. It's not that they lose their focus, but they get it back really quickly and really well. And so using those as teachable moments. But here at the center, one of the things we try to do off of that, John, is have, have our juniors practice close to our pros. Have them see them. Have them sometimes practice with our pros when it makes sense. Obviously, they have to be able to give them a good practice. So, you know, they have to be prepared for that. And, and we're not going to have our 12-year-olds go up against the traveling pro. But, you know, our kids that are 15 can hit a good enough ball that they can go give a pro a good practice. Some of them can. So the top, top ones can do that in the junior ages. So, so I think it's being on the court with those players and seeing how they deal with things. And part of what we need to do, because I, I think – in American tennis, we're heading into an age where we're going to see a lot of great performances. I believe in our players. We've got to make sure that our younger ones are modeling a lot of the good things that they see. And they're learning from the things that are hindering our players as well, because none of them are perfect. They're human beings. And in us facilitating that process, making sure that that's happening. So that social learning is absolutely important. And I think in any training environment, you want to account for that. You want to put them around pros. Even having them eating together, the juniors eating with the pros, talking. It's amazing, you know, just that's what our pros will talk to them about, life on the road, things that they deal with, how do they deal with rain delays to everything from how they how they were dealing with, you know, being in the hotel for a week, right? And, and really not being able to get out and socialize during the pandemic. So it's invaluable to have those pros around the juniors. But as you're pointing out, they all, the pros have to be demonstrating a lot of what you want to see. And when you don't have that, that becomes an issue, right? So either you, A, got to work with the juniors to help them understand some of the issues that we're seeing. B, work with the pros to get them on board with doing these things. Or C, keep them separated, right? And, which is 
my last strategy. I don't really want to separate them. I want them to feed off one another. What about your role in actually bringing these skills to life, I guess, Larry? How do you ask players questions in terms that resonate with them and gain you the answers that you truly need as a coach? And how can the player's progress be measured and tracked at the same time? I think it comes down to a lot of open-ended questions that get them thinking about what's going on in their head, why they're making the decisions they're making. Because I, I believe that the answers are often in them. I mean, these players know tennis. They're good. They're way better than I am at hitting a tennis ball. They've played way more matches than I have. So who am I to say that they don't have the answers? But it's digging in there, helping them find the answers, right? And asking those questions, those open-ended questions. You know, tell me more about that tiebreaker. What were the thoughts that were going through your head? Um, what were you feeling? How did that impact what you decided to do on court, right? And in digging into understanding the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors, and the situations that they're in, so we can get a really clear picture of what's happening in their situation live. I mean, we need to know those four pieces of information. What's the context? How are you perceiving it? How are you thinking? Where was your focus? How are you feeling physically and emotionally? And then how, you, how did you respond? And how did that feed back into that cycle? And if we know that, then we can give our players a really clear picture of what's happening to them, whether it's good, neutral, or bad, and being able to then to gain a sense that, okay, I'm organizing the chaos in my mind. So then I can begin to strategize. Okay, well, you know, this is going on. So this is the solution for that. Instead of which I think in the past, maybe mental training has been too much of, here's a few ideas, throw them up against the wall, see what sticks. That's not the way to do it. These players don't have time for that. You need to be able to identify the core issue that's going on and help them identify it and then talk about what's worked for them and get to that solution. You have to do that through asking open-ended questions. You have to ask about their history, their successes, their struggles, and identify exactly what's going on. If I come in with my pre-played plan, I'm not anywhere near as effective as if I'm working off of their ideas. I can't know them the way they know themselves, so I have to ask those open-ended questions. For me, that's key. And then i got to be able to probe on things and to be able to pick up on, okay, this seems to be a sensitive topic here. I need to dig into that a little bit more. Or they're not ready to go there yet, so I'm going to back off a little bit. I'm going to move to this other topic, which is very useful as well, and then come back at this in a different way. And that, that's just, I mean, the art of counseling, whatever you want to call it, right? Being able to sit with someone else one-on-one -on -one and have that conversation and, and take them through a journey of exploration, right? Understanding what's going on. Again, then how do we, we monitor that? I think we talked about that a little bit before, but are we, are we seeing that they're using the language that we're talking about? Are they talking about how they're responding versus just reacting emotionally to whatever's happening? Are they talking about using their breath? Are they talking about their ABCs, their process goals? and how that was their focus. Um, so when we start to hear the language, that tells us we're making progress. And we start to see it in action. So we'll go to the court and we'll look for specific things. So maybe we've taught our player a between points routine. What do we see? Do we see good posture, good body language? Do we see good energy? Do we see good timing? Do we see the breath change after the point ends? Are they still been trying to go play? Is it a shower or is it a deeper, maybe even a, a diaphragmatic or belly breath? Do they take that pause, momentary pause to slow down, think about what they're going to do, and then turn to the line and do it? Do they have rituals that 
give you a sense of rhythm and flow. You know, they bounce the ball a certain number of times. They swing back and forth. You can sense that they're ready, right? That they're engaged. Their eyes are locked in. So we try to look for these cues as we watch them and then help them become aware of things that, you know, that aren't working for them uh, that might, might be hindering their readiness to perform. So, so there's things you do in the room when you're with them and you're meeting, you're listening to the words they're using, you're paying attention to how they're analyzing their own performances. Are they really using the language? Are they starting to identify their own ways of organizing the, the chaos? And then when you get on the court, there's certain cues that you're looking for. Um, we actually have broken it down by four stages in between points, um, which as they get older, we give that to them. We show them all the different things, different ways that they can analyze their routines if they want. You know, but those are things that we we uh, look for over time. And then we just need to see them over time, multiple points in time, because we know that when we watch a match or practice, that's just a moment in time. It's not necessarily an evaluation of where they are. So we need to follow up with the coach. We need to watch them the second time. We need to look at their tournament results. We need to go with them to a tournament to get a better understanding of what, what's going on throughout the year. I imagine from your perspective, it must be quite gratifying when you see the penny drop, when a certain action or a certain line of questioning has actually enabled the player to find the answers they're looking for to somehow organize that chaos you described. It is fun, John. You know, when you see kind of the light bulb moment, like, ah, it makes sense now. And the coolest thing is when they do it for themselves, because I'm just asking the questions. I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know any better if they weren't in the room. So taking them through the questions and they start worrying like, Oh, I see now. Okay. This is why this is occurring. Then you start getting deeper below the surface into, well, you know, what I was really thinking was I'm higher ranked and therefore I shouldn't lose to them. And my parents are talking about how this is a big match for me. And then you start getting under the surface of the psychology and why they had a lot of anxiety, maybe why they didn't swing out during the performance, maybe why their routines fell apart and they got frustrated. Uh, until you get there, you're just really dealing with the surface and you're not getting to the core issue. Very gratifying. Fantastic. And what about the impact of the pandemic on your work in this area? What are some of the lasting lessons you've learned as we begin to emerge from everything? You know, I think number one, John, that people are resilient. They're strong. They can find their way, but it's going to come with adversity. It's going to come with struggle too. People are struggling also, right? Uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Dr. Nick Dewan, who's a sports psychiatrist. And he said, even if there's an end to this pandemic, that months after that, people are going to be feeling the effects of it and feeling lonely, feeling anxious, feeling down. Because you have to change the chemicals in your brain. You need to reopen certain gates in the brain where you can experience more joy and gratitude for being in the present and with others. So, so I think the, the process is continuing. But I think we, we learned that we, we are resilient. We all can be resilient, you know, that everyone has their moments of struggle and anything that's happening in pro sports right now or in the Olympic sports is that mental health is key, right? And it's very important. And what we're learning in which, which we already knew, but people weren't talking about it so much, at least those of us that work in this area, that everyone struggles and, you know, everybody's dealing with stuff, even if they look great on the outside. And so without diagnosing everyone, like you've got a problem. <laughs> what is it? It's to listen. It's to have them be heard and understand. Be like, okay, you know, let's help you with this. If, if there's something, oh, you know what? You're dealing with that really well. I'm going to check back and say, great job. Or you know what? Yeah, maybe you need a little bit more support to get to where you want to be. So let's find the right person, whether that would be me, or maybe in this case, we're talking about a therapist and trying to break down that stigma of well, it must be me. I must have a problem. And not wanting to share to, 
Huh. We've all, we've been hearing about this. It's just like something physical. If you were struggling with your knee, you would go get looked at. If you're struggling emotionally, mentally, talk to someone. And there's trained professionals who can better, as we've been talking about in this podcast, get to the core of what's happening and give you ideas or help you, better yet, help you unearth your own ideas for thriving again, for being resilient again. So, so I think the pandemic has definitely opened up more of that conversation I think the pandemic has also helped players and coaches and performance staff wrestle with this question of how do I integrate work with life? And not that we have all the solutions yet, but how do I do this in a better way? Because you went from probably a lot of us were traveling a lot in this world and then boom, you're not traveling anymore. And now you're traveling some, but when you travel, then you can't be around anyone. You got to wear a mask. So you're still alone. And then it's opened up more since then. So I think that people have you know, really taken a hard look at their lives and analyzed whether or not they're doing what they want to do. A lot of people change jobs during the pandemic. They change passions or hobbies and are doing different things. And they're, they're trying to find healthier ways to integrate in our world, tennis and life. You know, what does it mean to be a tennis player, pro tennis player? Is it is that what I want? And why do I want it? And asking those questions during the pandemic. So I think one of the outcomes of that, John, is that uh, you see players who are a little bit more clear on their why, because there was time to analyze it. The tennis went away for a little bit and they thought about what they wanted. I've had a number of players who are playing and they've talked about how their purpose is clear, their why is clear, why they're playing, why they're doing this. But this integration of work and life, tennis and life continues um, because the world is open back up and, and it's a full schedule. And, you know, now how can you, can you maintain some healthy integration? I don't talk about work-life balance because I don't think it exists in our world, high-performance world. I think it's a healthy imbalance or integration that you're looking for. Jim Lair used to talk about so or does talk about. So I think that that is our messaging to the players and coaches and performance staff that don't search for that perfection, that balance where everything's just right. Because you're going to be disappointed. Get comfortable with the tension moments, with the challenges, but know why you're doing what you're doing and make sure you're putting energy into the things that are most important. Enough energy, enough engagement and plan for that. Uh, so maybe you travel a lot. So when you're home, put the phone down, block out time, totally engage with your family and make that time immersive with them versus being distracted. Then you don't feel like you were there. So you know, those are things that I think are become more of the conversations. How do we do this pro world in a healthy way? And I think it's amazing. And Larry, that leads me very nicely to my final question, which is how do you see the role of the mental skills coach evolving in the coming years? I'm a little worried. We're just going to kind of remain status quo, which I don't think necessarily that's good. I'm hoping that the role will evolve. You know, I, I see the mental skills coach and mental performance coach being a member of a team and being integrated into the daily work of the team, working with coaches, working with performance staff, and, and being more normalized as a part of that system versus being separated out. Like, okay, now it's a rainy day, go do mental training, or you've got an issue, so go up to this office on the third floor right? Or go to this other site and see this person. So I think more integration, and I, I think it will happen because teams, organizations are analyzing how they can perform effectively. And they're also looking to dollars and cents of what makes a difference. And I do believe that, you know, having a mental skills coach, a mental performance coach, we, we have different names, but it's going to aid in that sort of daily training and thriving through that training and being focused and being resilient. We're there in in the mix, working with the coaches and players so they can be resilient. So we're talking about ways to look at adversity, surprises, 
distractions, failures in a way that they can bounce back quickly. We're in there, you know, building up those skill sets that we need so we can thrive and be resilient and not stay down for too long or bounce back quickly. And we're in there as support, listening, you know, encouraging, giving advice when it makes sense. And, you know, if we want people to be resilient, we have to work as a team together to support them in doing those things, helping them develop philosophies and perspectives that allows the resilience to come out, developing those skill sets and also being there to support them. And that support, you know, is challenged sometimes emotionally, tactically, technically, mentally. And it's not, a lot of times it's support, you know, just being for them, having them be heard, listening to them and, and encouraging, empathizing, all these things. So I think that the role of the mental coach is going to continue to be really important. Hopefully it's going to be integrated into these teams and they're working closely with other therapists and mental health professionals. Because I think obviously, you know, I'm not a licensed psychologist, so I'm, I'm not doing therapy. I'm doing performance work. And I work closely with a no, number of other mental health professionals, psychologists, counselors, psychiatrists, and work together as a team. And, and I, that's really where I'd love to see it go from being territorial to let's work together. Because, you know, in their practice, typically they might be seeing patients as well as athletes, they may not have the time to travel with the performers. Maybe they do. Maybe they're in one position where they can, but they may not be able to. So the mental skills coach is going to be on the ground, watching practice, watching matches, giving feedback. Uh, so we can work together, I think. And that's where I see it evolving, where a mental skills coach is not only valued for what they do, but they're also working closely with other professionals instead of working apart from. If we're going to evolve this thing, John, we have to keep finding ways to innovate. Uh, we've got to look at new areas. Mental performance coaches should be at the cusp of different ways to create stressful environments, simulate them and train through them, right? Finding ways to help performers really use their mind to find success. How do we focus? How do we stay present? And how do we make decisions under pressure? How do we stay in, in this zone that's our best performance versus getting outside of it? So mental coaches should be at the cusp of the latest stuff to help us to do that. You know, it, it, we're looking at virtual reality, you know, augmented sort of things that we can train with pressure. What about cognitive training? So there's different things that we need to find ways to bring into mental training instead of being like, yeah, that's, that's really not what we do. Let's keep that out. Uh, I think that that innovation, that evolving will allow us to continue to be uh, relevant and competent and effective. So how do we use these way, things in reliable, valid ways? And, and that brings me to the last thing that I'll say is we have to find ways to get better at measuring mental performance. We talked a little bit about that today, how do we do that. And it, it's something I continue to try and get at. And, you know, it, it's always a challenge, but I think there are some, some cool ways that people are doing it. And you know, those are things we have to continue to look. How do we better measure these mental performances so that our athletes are getting feedback, so our coaches are getting feedback? And that will help the mental coach role evolve from kind of being on the sideline and being an afterthought sometimes to being a part of the team and providing the support that's necessary. This has been brilliant, Larry. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it, John. I enjoyed it.